wuft.org. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. Really, really happy you could be tuned in here on this Friday, October 20th. And happy to welcome back to the program our friend from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Martha Malicode. And we're going to be talking today about equine wellness care, not just over the course of, say, a horse's life, but in the course of even in terms of a year and, and how it might benefit horses to have visits from a veterinarian. Maybe there are some vaccines and whatnot to administer. We're going to find out all about it coming up after this news from NPR. Stay tuned. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm so happy you've tuned in here on this Friday, October 20th here, a beautiful day in north-central Florida. And I'm really happy to welcome back to the program a friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, who I feel like hasn't been here in a while, so it's good to have her back and to catch up, Martha Malicote. And we're going to be talking today about equine wellness care. And there are a lot of different components to this, as maybe wouldn't surprise you, because, of course, uh, one, horses you know, live reasonably long lives, and over the course of any animal's life, some issues may arise. Horses are big animals, and horses live outside, and they live sometimes around other animals. So we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff. Um, and let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Malakot. I'm really glad that you could be here. When we think about horses, specifically the uh, ones who live here in Florida around us, um, you know, we know that they live in a variety of situations. Some people may have one horse. Some people may have a farm with a lot of horses. And uh, overall, just like right off the bat, does the, does the challenge or the goal of caring for horses depend on anything like that? It can. Oftentimes those variations in how many horses a person has or how they're kept also are related to what that horse does for a job. Does it travel away from the farm or do other animals, if it's kept in a group of animals, travel back and forth from the farm to horse shows or other events? Where they'll encounter other strange horses. And all of those things are components when it comes to determining what we need to do to keep those horses healthy. Um, some of the impact also has to do with environment, like you've talked about. You know, are these horses outside all the time? Do they come into the stall or in the barn at all? All of those things can have an impact. And, you know, many people think of wellness care as being vaccination. And that is a really important part of it, especially here in Florida. But that is certainly not the end of what we're talking about when it comes to wellness care and involving your veterinarian and making sure that your horse is as healthy as possible. So let's then start kind of at a horse's very young age. It is born and it will, one hopes, be seen by a veterinarian pretty early in its life. What is a veterinarian going to be looking for? Absolutely. That first visit from a veterinarian should actually happen within the first day of that foal's life. Um, it's really important with horses, as well as most of our other large animal species, to make sure those foals get colostrum or that first milk from their mom. And that colostrum gives them almost all of the immunity that they have when they're first born. Um, the placenta of horses doesn't allow them to get a lot of immune um, 
supplementation from their mom before they're born. And so that is incredibly important. And part of that first exam with the foal is making sure that they did get good colostrum and that they have adequate immunity to start their lives. Um, as they get to be a month or two old, they've started to develop their own immune systems. But in that in-between time, it's actually quite important that they've gotten good colostrum from a mom that also is well vaccinated and well cared for so that she can provide good immunity to her foal. So that's a really important part of that first exam. We, all, we also look to make sure that the foal is behaving normally, is getting the nutrition it needs, is able to move around comfortably, has no other obvious health problems. And that's actually a really important first step in making sure the foal is starting off life healthy. There are strategies or options if the foal is not or has not received colostrum? Is there a synthetic kind of substitute? There are strategies. And unfortunately with horses, the strategy that we have is actually more complicated than some of our other large animal species. We have to give them plasma intravenously through a catheter in order to provide that supplement if they, for some reason, didn't get it from mom. If mom didn't have good colostrum, there wasn't milk available, maybe the foal was sick, things like that. Um, we do have something we can give, but a veterinarian has to bring that plasma out and give it intravenously. Some of our other large animal species can be supplemented supplemented orally with products that you can actually purchase um, from feed suppliers, but those aren't really effective in foals. And so it's especially important for them that we get the opportunity to assess and intervene if we need to. Now, within 24 hours, you will have already surmised some things about a foal's health because a foal, unlike, say, a human baby, will already be doing some things that I find remarkable insofar. I mean, even unlike a kitten, I mean, a 24-hour old kitten can't do anything, right. but a foal is, is kind of up and going at it. Absolutely. They're a prey species, right? And so they are, um, you know, in a normal healthy foaling, that foal is standing by an hour of age and it's suckling the mare within two. And that's because in a natural environment, that foal would have to be able to get up and run away if necessary. And so it's very different from some of our other species and certainly human babies when we think about how ready they need to be to enter the world. And so all of those things are part of their normal physiology. We want to see that they can do all those things. If they can't get up, if they can't eat, that's a big problem. And we're going to have to intervene with additional treatments and sometimes referral if that's the case. Yeah. I, and now, not to make Make a diversion here, but I've I have heard you know that horses are uh, a prey species and they've been uh, kind of evolved to have that uh, ability to be mobile at a young age. But uh, it's been some time I feel like since saber toothed tigers or or wolves roam Florida looking for foals to eat. Um, <laughs> that that is certainly fair. Um, a lot of what they do from a physiology perspective is based on ways that they, you know, used to live, not the yeah. way that we keep them. We we take very close care of our foals. Although, you know, occasionally there are wild animals out in pastures and, you know, foals that are born unsupervised could be at risk of a problem. And luckily they can get up and yeah, run away. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're probably pretty quick too. What about the vaccines that you want to administer at, at, a, at a young foal? I mean, because we're talking about we're talking about a 24-hour old animal here. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. We actually um, don't administer any vaccines right away. That colostrum that I talked about already is really important, but um, the foal is not ready to respond appropriately to those vaccines, assuming it got good colostrum right away. Um, the immunity it got from that colostrum is actually going to interrupt the ability of the vaccines to do the best job of um, helping the foal develop its own immunity. So what we actually do is wait, um, assuming that foal got good colostrum and has some of its own protection for the time being, we're going to see 
see that fall back at four, five, six months of age for vaccinations. And this is where it starts to be really important that a veterinarian helps to figure out what that vaccine schedule needs to be. Because there are recommendations, but they can vary depending upon location, the propensity for mosquitoes to be in the area, which I know is something that all of us in Florida are really sensitive to. Obviously, we have lots of mosquitoes and there's a lot of concern for mosquito-borne diseases. And so we sometimes even adjust what might be national recommendations to fit our specific environment. We vaccinate more frequently for mosquito-borne diseases. And so um, having that veterinarian get involved in giving strategically the right vaccines at the right months of four, five, and six is actually quite important. Uh, most of the vaccines we give the foals, they need to be boosted on. So they get it once and then they get it again about a month later before we consider that they have good immunity going forward from there. Yeah. Um, the vaccine regimen, is it is it extensive? Are there are there a good number of shots that these animals are getting? You know, it's interesting that you ask that because when we think about what we're vaccinating for, there's actually quite a lot of things. Luckily, it's not an individual shot for every single okay. um, disease. But we do actually in this country have to vaccinate horses for a fair amount of infectious diseases. There's a good deal of them. You know, we have multiple mosquito-borne diseases that cause neurologic problems. Um, those are equine encephalitis disease. There's Eastern equine encephalitis, Western equine encephalitis, and West Nile virus. And they're all similarly mosquito-borne and will cause neurologic signs in those horses. And so those are one of the things that those foals need to be vaccinated early on in life. We also vaccinate foals for respiratory infections. There's several viruses that cause respiratory infections and we vaccinate them for those. And then at a minimum between those two things, the last thing those foals need is rabies vaccination. Um, horses do have a lot of contact with wildlife and they very realistically are at risk of exposure to rabies. So all of those things, it sounds like a long list, are part of that initial set of things that foal needs to get. Yeah, I want to ask a little bit about rabies because this, this uh, you know, I mean, not that the other ones aren't ongoing uh, needs, but a, a rabies vaccine for, say, a pet that a person might have in the home, like a dog or a cat, that needs to be updated every year, right? Uh, is it the same for horses? Um it is the same for horses in terms of annual rabies vaccination. There's actually an increased understanding of the frequency for dogs and cats. I am not a dog and cat vet, but they are actually starting to be able to lengthen their vaccine cycles and give them those boosters every three years. Um, but uh, for horses, we still vaccinate them annually for rabies after that first you know, baby shots where they may get a booster. And it's incredibly important. It's not that common to have a horse or other large animal that develops rabies. But if you consider how horses live, at least part of their lives, they're out in pasture. And there are many opportunities for wildlife to interact with them in that setting. So there very realistically could be a connection between a rabid, you know, raccoon and the human owner and perhaps that human owner's children, for example. So. Oh, I mean, <laughs> and it doesn't even need to be a pasture. I, I bet you there are many... A, a barn or stable that has seen a visit from a raccoon. Uh, the, <laughs> My are, own barn within yeah. the last 24 hours. It's yeah. very true. <laughs> yeah. So these, these are these are critters that can get into yeah. places and rabies would be what? Uniformly fatal for Absolutely. Yeah. It's uniformly fatal for basically all of our animal species. There's very few reports of humans that have survived with some really um, cutting edge intervention, but essentially it is a uniformly fatal disease. So while, you know, some people think, well, that never happens in a horse, the the risk when it does happen is substantial. So we have to make sure to address that with prevention. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, even if the, even if the risks are kind of low, the stakes are high. Absolutely. With some of the other vaccinations that you are administering, these are vaccines that have been developed over like probably years and years uh, and strategies have been employed to try to mitigate some of the 
risks that uh, animals can have when they receive these vaccines, but do they experience any side effects when the vaccines are administered? That's a great question and one that many owners have because they are worried about side effects. We're worried about side effects when we get ourselves get vaccines and all of our, our pets. And side effects do occur. I'm not, I won't tell you it's without risk, but as you said, most of these vaccines have been around a long time. They have very well-developed technology that's very safe and the risk benefit ratio of preventing very serious infectious diseases with those vaccinations is actually well worth the small risk of a reaction. There are occasionally horses that will individually, that one horse have a significant reaction to a vaccine. And, you know, we might adjust that horse's vaccination schedule to try to minimize and just really give the bare minimum of what's safe and appropriate. But for the most part, the benefit of preventing things like um, equine encephalitis, preventing rabies, preventing tetanus, um, that's well worth the the small risk of giving the vaccine. Uh, We already talked a little bit about rabies, but tetanus, describe what that would, how that would affect a horse. Um, Tetanus, the bacteria that causes tetanus is kind of freely available in the soil. It's a spore. And so it's quite resilient to the environment, to heat, to rain, to, you know, drying, things like that. And so it's kind of ubiquitous out there. And so when a horse or really any animal gets a cut or has even a surgical incision, um, they have risk of getting tetanus into that incision. And horses are particularly sensitive to tetanus of our species. They're one of the most sensitive. And they will develop a type of paralysis when they get that infection. And so it's it's also a very... Um, commonly fatal disease. You Horses can survive tetanus, but it's quite uncommon. And so the prevention is well worth it because that horse that does develop tetanus is very likely to require expensive and complicated treatment, and then they may or may not survive. Some of the other infections that you were describing, um, the encephalitis and so forth, mm-hmm. how do those affect a horse? Both, um, well, all three of our encephalitis that we have in this country all cause neurologic disease in the horse. Interestingly, horses are a little bit of a, um, a proxy or a marker for us of human risk. Humans can also get um, sick from these viruses. They have slightly different types of disease than horses do, um, but the horses can get quite quite severe neurologic disease. There's kind of a range. West Nile virus is typically less severe. Um, Triple E or Eastern equine encephalitis, as we call it, is much more severe. And overwhelmingly, horses that get triple E will die. And they actually die quite rapidly, usually within a day or two. It's really scary um, for owners who have never seen something like that happen before. And I hope no owner ever has to see it. It's quite scary to see how rapidly those animals get sick and develop such severe neurologic signs that they're mentally inappropriate. They're running into walls. They're falling over. They can develop seizures. It's it's pretty serious. How do they contract this disease? They are bit by mosquitoes that are carrying it. And the mosquitoes pick up that virus from birds. Wildlife birds are the kind of carriers of it. And then the mosquitoes pick it up and give it to the horses when they bite them. Horses, um, for the encephalitis viruses we have in this country, horses cannot be what we call viremic. They can't carry the infection in a way to then pass it to another horse or give it back to a mosquito. The horses are what we call dead-end hosts, or they get the infection, they get sick, but they don't pass it on to anything else. Which, I mean, still, it's unfortunate because we have no shortage of mosquitoes where we live. And there's plenty of birds where we live as well, uh, whether they're traveling or they are permanently here. And there are quite a few horses. Are there, are there frequently cases of some of these infections in Florida? 
you know, interestingly, we are certainly at risk and we are at risk year round, which is really important and different than other parts of the country. Cause I think we've all seen a mosquito in January mm-hmm. around here. I don't think I have to convince anyone of that. So it's really important that our horses be protected year round. You know, on average, there are for triple E, for example, probably between 20 and 30 cases reported a year in this state. Um, it can vary year to year, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little more, but we actually think from a, um, epidemiologic point of view, that doesn't even reflect all the animals that get sick. Um, so there are likely more cases out there. And um, with West Nile virus, there can be some variation as well, but we see between maybe 10 and 20 equine cases a year. And, um, you know, there can be years that are worse. There can be years that certain areas are worse because there is a essentially a, a big group of infected birds in that particular geographic region. And so then we will see more infected horses um, in that region in that year. Um, for example, last year I had two horses that were coming from a very, very close together in a particular area. And clearly there was a substantial amount of circulating virus in the birds that were in that, that county. So in this young foal's life, these vaccines you would consider these va- you would consider them very important because Absolutely. because the the risks um, for not having them the the animal would be in potential danger. Absolutely, it's very important to get that foal started on the right track as a young horse, and then we follow that with managing them as adults with reboostering them based on the risk of you know the seasons and the mosquito exposure and things like that. Following up after that first year of life. How long is a horse considered a foal? Um, they're considered a foal technically until they're a year old. We have other little subdivisions that we make in that they're weaned at about five or six months of age. And so then they're with their mom and they're without. Um, but we treat them like babies, essentially like foals for the first year. And then after that, we start to treat them more like adult horses and how we manage their wellness care. Yeah. So they would continue uh, to have visits from a veterinarian, ideally. Mm-hmm. And in the course of those visits, does your approach to caring for them change once they're no longer foals? Absolutely. Their immunity changes. You know, our need for vaccinations, we're then in the, the place where we're doing boosters, um, strategically based on what that horse is going to be doing for its job in life. Um, we also change our parasite management. When those foals are young, they don't have a lot of immunity to parasites, and they're susceptible to certain GI parasites that don't even cause a problem in adult horses because they develop immunity to it. So um, ascarids are the category I'm talking about, and we have to deworm our foals more frequently than we would deworm an adult horse because they don't have a good immunity to it. As they become a year of age and older, they're then able to fight off those parasites on their own, and we focus on what we kind of think of as the adult horse where GI do they, parasites. Where do they acquire these parasites? Um, ascarids, and actually most of the GI parasites are acquired from their environment, from like grazing on pasture. The eggs will be passed out by other animals that are infected and leave the eggs on pasture for them to then ingest either as an egg or that egg will start to mature and become an immature larvae and then it's ingest, it's eaten by the foal. Um, Particularly, some of these parasite eggs are extremely resilient on pasture. For example, ascaris, the ones that foals get, can live on pasture for quite a long time. Those eggs, before they start to mature into larvae, are really hard to kill with heat, cold, you know, drying, wet temperature, wet uh, environments, things like that. Yeah. Um, and these these animals that that acquire these parasites, they can be treated once they have them, right? Mm-hmm. They can. We have, um, we certainly have drugs we can give to treat for parasites. Um, a little bit of a challenge we're having in parasites, and it's not 
just in horses. I think anybody that has an animal right now is cognizant of the fact that we're seeing more resistance in all the medications we're using, both for bacteria and for parasites. And the same is true with horse parasites. We have several drugs that are available. We're seeing growing resistance to those drugs amongst the parasite population. So we're having to be really cautious about how we use those drugs and make sure that we're treating strategically when it's needed and we're not giving those drugs unnecessarily when they're not needed because that just contributes to resistance. Yeah. And and that must be that must be a challenge for anybody who is in healthcare is to you know not not use excessively some of these medications that may in the long run cause the problem of resistance it is especially true you hear this all the time about you know antibiotic resistance and mm-hmm. so forth and and we all want to be able to have effective antibiotics and maybe, you know, one of the ways is to just not overdo it when you don't need to. Um, Dr. Malico, maybe this is a good place to take our first break in the program. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. And I'm Dana Hill. My guest from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Martha Malicota. We're talking about equine wellness care. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm really happy to have Martha Malico with me this week, and we're talking about equine wellness care. And when we began the program, we were talking largely about foals, young horses. But as we move into uh, the life of an adult horse, things probably change. Many of these horses may be doing whatever work their life may involve. Certainly there are horses that are, are they live a life of leisure, so to say, uh, so to speak, but other horses have work to do. Um, do, do their veterinary needs change? Absolutely. They definitely do. Um, First off, when we are managing more of the adult horse, we are considering what vaccine strategies are appropriate based on that horse's travel. Do they stay on the farm? And as you kind of said, a a life of leisure of a horse that doesn't travel much versus a horse that goes to a horse show every other week needs to be vaccinated differently to prevent diseases that they're going to be exposed to in that kind of group environment, encountering horses they don't know, horses that may have different management schemes from them. So that's one aspect of it is helping to develop what is the strategy to vaccinate each of the populations. Your, you know, your brood mares that may never leave the farm need a different strategy than your show horses that may travel. And so that's part of that consideration with adult horses. Um, another big consideration with adult horses, once they reach that point, is that we need to be doing dental evaluations on horses every year. Um, horse teeth uh, are designed to wear down constantly. They're constantly erupting new tooth through their life. It's, it's very different from what you or I might think of in our own mouth. And that is designed to be for a grazing animal, a horse that has its head down and is eating grass much of the day. And, you know, some of what we do to manage horses now changes the ability for them to grind their own teeth down appropriately. We feed them a lot of hay forage. We feed them more grain and sometimes perhaps less perhaps less grass or that kind of thing. So we need to be evaluating, looking at those teeth to make sure the horses are grinding it down appropriately, not developing sharp areas that might be painful and might make it uncomfortable for them to do their job. And so that evaluation is best done by a veterinarian. And if anything needs to be adjusted, treated, um, filed down, then we're able to do that as well. And that's definitely part of that annual evaluation of a horse is looking in their mouth to make sure everything is copacetic. And, and it seems to me that, you know, as animals that have probably fairly consistent diets, horses do, right, um, do you see 
pretty level patterns of wear in most horses' mouths? And are there are the dental checkups usually fairly consistent? You see the same things for horses that have good dental. Um, confirmation, which isn't something we think about a lot. Their mouths are put together properly. Yes, they do tend to grind them down mostly on their own and they don't need a lot. Um, you know, when we choose horses to breed and choose horses to try to, you know, propagate more of, we don't necessarily pick them for good dental anatomy. We're picking horses that are able to do their working job really well. They may jump a fence well, or they may do a dressage test well, or um, things like that. And so we may not pick them for the best mouth. (laughs) And as a result, there are some horses out there that don't have good dental anatomy. If they were a wild Mustang, they wouldn't survive long without being able to eat well, but we take care of that for them. So there are certainly many horses that do fine with a little bit of regular evaluation and occasionally getting some floating done, but some do need more intervention. And that's because we haven't always selected them for, you know, having the perfectly set up oral cavity. And especially some of the ones we think of like ponies and especially miniature horses, they have all the same teeth in a much smaller space. And so those guys can especially have problems with their dental anatomy and may need more intervention. Do you ever see something like decay or what do they call it? Caries? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we don't see a lot of caries in horses and that probably has to do with the kind of diet they have. You know, a carry is essentially a cavity for you or me and they, they can get that type of infection, but it's quite rare actually. Um, what is more likely to happen is that they have some kind of trauma to that tooth and that can get more likely as they age and they do get infection along an area where there might be a crack in the tooth or an area where there's feed packing in. So it's a little bit different flavor of a problem Mm. than what you think about for you or I, or even for a, a dog. Um, but it's certainly equally important to check and make sure that everything is in good working order. There. So with a, with a dental exam, uh, the horses, do they tolerate this pretty well? They do, but we, we do have the option and usually do sedate them to make sure that they tolerate that pretty well. Um, we have a tool called the speculum that helps hold their mouth open so that we can get a good visual exam all the way to the very back, which is best done with a bit of sedation and with that speculum, because otherwise you're not going to stick your hand all the way in the back of their mouth. At least it's unlikely that you'll be able to do that safely. And we certainly can't see back there without that speculum and a good light source. And, you know, we spend some time doing a good exam, feeling everything, making sure there's no feed packed in or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look in the in the mouths of these horses and you find that everything is is in pretty good working order, um, you know, overall, I guess that indicates that the horse is probably getting pretty well taken care of. Um, but but do you find more problems in horses that are just like, you know, uh, not really? I don't, what's the word? Horses that maybe don't go off and do work. Maybe horses that are kind of just pasture animals. Not necessarily. I think the the biggest factor with having dental problems is really just how that horse's mouth is put together. There's not necessarily a, a risk of it being worse if the horse doesn't do a job, but it's perhaps more important that a horse that is ridden and has a, a bridle and a bit that is it wears when it's ridden, that their dental anatomy be good. Because if you have discomfort in the mouth, the bit and the bridle may exacerbate that. And mm-hmm. we want to make sure that they're comfortable working and doing their job. Do horses ever need a tooth extraction? Yes. They do. Um, They can get abscesses at the roots of their teeth. That's more common in older horses or like, you know, one of those teeth that gets cracked or gets traumatized. That would be another situation that happens. And it's most common in the older ones. And it can be quite a job to extract a tooth because that whole aspect of them constantly erupting more tooth means that they have a very long tooth root, especially if they're a young horse. And so it can make that process of extracting the tooth quite a job for the veterinarian. Um, And so, you know, it certainly requires 
some special techniques to do that. Yeah. So that is part of a regular annual exam. Uh, what else, as the horse gets older, will you look for in an annual exam? What about their? What about something like their eyes or their ears? All of that's important. You know, I think it's incredibly important that we think horse owners think of that veterinary visit, not just as the veterinarians coming to give the shots, the veterinarians coming to check over your horse and make sure that they're healthy and well. And if it's a horse that has a job that they're able to do that job well and that they're comfortable and sound. And so that does include looking at their eyes, looking at their ears, checking out to make sure that they're comfortable and sound when they're moving, making sure they don't have skin problems. We have a ton of skin problems in Florida. Again, these bugs, we have so many insect-related issues. And so um, making sure that their skin is healthy and they don't have evidence of allergies or infections, all of that is part of a good exam. Um, And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, you know, one of my favorite areas of practice is endocrine disease. And that is a category that happens to horses as they age, they are more likely to have endocrine diseases. And so our veterinary exam can help to identify those early signs and let you say, hey, this might be what's going on here. I'd like to test your horse for this endocrine disorder. Here for, for my sake. Uh, if not for others. Describe endocrine disease. Um, So endocrine is just a big category that describes a set of glands that make hormones messengers within the body. And with horses, the ones that are going to be ring commonly and true to people that are in the horse industry are going to be Cushing's disease or PPID is the newer term we have for that. Pars pituitary, uh, pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction. And then we also have horses that get equine metabolic syndrome, which is not the same as, but it's nice to think of it as a comparison to type 2 diabetes in people. Not exactly the same, but it's a nice kind of comparison point to what we're all more familiar with. And both of those endocrine diseases happen um, a little more commonly as horses age. There's some overlap. EMS can be in slightly younger populations, PPID or Cushing's diseases, older populations. Um, But that's certainly something we start to look for the physical signs of. Do horses, uh, as they as they age, uh, experience something like um, loss of vision? Like, do they do, do, I mean, I don't know how important a horse's eyesight is, but I would imagine as prey animals, they want to have pretty decent eyesight, uh, and especially horses that are doing any kind of activity. Certainly. Do, do they ever have sort of life-limiting eyesight problems? You know, it's a good question. We We can't necessarily identify how good a horse's vision is, right? You or I can do an eye test and the, the, the optometrist or ophthalmologist can quantify how good our vision is. We can't necessarily do that with horses. And so there may be some that have a little bit of decreased capability that we don't recognize. Um, but what we can recognize is if they have eye discomfort or eye problems that can alter retinal function and perhaps leave them ultimately with poor vision or no vision. And so that regular eye exam can help with catching these you know, little tricky diseases that don't show you a lot of signs. For example, um, particularly Appaloosas, which is a breed of horse are susceptible to a certain kind of eye disorder and they're surprisingly comfortable looking. The owner looks at the horse and the eye looks comfortable. There's not a lot of tearing or discharge and you know so they're it's what we would call insidious. It's kind of hidden and that horse may actually have a pretty serious eye disease that's making their vision worse and worse over time. And so the opportunity for the vet to look at those horses, eyes, skin, comfort level is actually incredibly important for having a, a long and healthy lifespan. When you're doing an annual exam for a horse, do you account for the horse's 
weight? Do horses ever become overweight and does that ever create problems? Absolutely. That's actually a cornerstone of how we identify metabolic syndrome, that equine metabolic syndrome I was talking about. Um, you know, every overweight horse does not automatically have it, but there is certainly crossover between those two. And so if we see a horse that is not at a healthy weight, whether it's high or low, we're going to want to investigate the reasons for that. The reasons are slightly different between those two categories, but they're both important things to look into. And particularly when we think about overweight horses, and metabolic syndrome, it can put them at increased risk of a specific problem related to horses' hooves called laminitis or founder. And I feel sure that you've talked with other folks about this on this show before, but that disease in a nutshell is uh, an alteration in the hoof that can ultimately become life-threatening because it's so painful and serious. And so if we can prevent laminitis from happening, that's a huge win for that horse. Yeah. And when we talk about horses, one of the things that is going to be uh, an issue for a lot of animals that are doing a- activities, uh, horses that have something like a, a lameness issue, are the, is that ever something that you discover at an exam or is that something that somebody would have noticed separately and called you about? For the category of horses that are performing, that have a job, they're likely to have been noticed because those are horses that are working every day. Often the riders are taking lessons or have a trainer. And so someone's watching that happen. And so you have multiple inputs. You know, you have the rider that might feel something abnormal. You have the trainer or the uh, teacher that sees something abnormal. And, And so often we'll get a call. This horse is a little bit lame. Can you come take a look at it? But actually the population that I think we get the best opportunity to identify things for is kind of that pet population or the retired horse population that, you know, they're not working necessarily. They get turned out to pasture and the owner might see them do some exercise at pasture, but otherwise they might not recognize a a more subtle discomfort that the horse has. So then we have an opportunity to probably improve that horse's quality of life if we can say, hey, actually there is a lameness here and there's something we can do about that. Is there a time in a horse's life in which colic is no longer a concern? Oh, never. (laughs) Colic is a concern from birth until death, unfortunately, in horses. There's probably some times of their life where it's a bigger risk than others as they age. Um, There are certain things that are more likely to happen, but unfortunately, there is never a time that's not a concern. For our non-horse people who are listening right now, can you describe uh, what colic is and, and how Uh, it can really severely affect a horse's life. Absolutely. Colic is a kind of umbrella term that describes any kind of abdominal discomfort that a horse has. And it, the horse's GI tract, I'm going to admit, it's not particularly well designed. There are a lot of things that can go wrong. Some of them are things that aren't preventable, like when the GI tract gets moved around in a place that it doesn't belong or gets twisted. But there are also things that can be prevented with good management, like a horse getting an impaction from a lot of dry feed or not enough water intake. And so there's lots of types of colic, but some of them can be really serious and require surgery. Some can be less serious and require just some medical therapy and a little bit of intervention. Um, But that's always a risk for a horse one way or the other over the course of their life. Yeah. And the options for treatment are probably very depending on what, how it sort of arrived that this horse got colic. Uh, And as you say, some may involve surgery. I mean, that's nobody wants to have to do that, especially with an animal that's as big as a horse. Uh, You know, I mean, you got to get a horse somewhere where it's safe enough to do an operation, right? Mm -hmm. And your options for taking care of it that are non-surgical are sometimes, I imagine, kind of unpleasant, but nevertheless, uh, they can be effective. And the... Is the difference night and day? Like once you fix it, does the horse feel almost immediately better? 
Um, it depends a bit on what the cause is. They certainly do feel better pretty rapidly when you, you know, correct whatever is immediately wrong. But there's a lot of secondary um, effects after a colic episode, inflammation, um, you know, that the horse has to recover from as well. Um, but what's important with colic to keep in mind is that there are some things that are really unfortunately not preventable, but there's a category of types of colic that can be preventable. And so routine care can help with that category. Things like regular dental care can make sure the horses are chewing their feed well and they don't have large unchewed feed wads that are going down through their, through their GI tract. Having appropriate parasite prevention, the use of the right dewormers at the right time can help to prevent types of colic that are caused by parasites. And so having that veterinarian to give you advice about all those pieces of, of potential types of colic can help minimize the risk of those things. And then unfortunately, we still have the risk of the stuff we can't prevent, but it does make the likelihood of colic less. Is colic something that comes up suddenly or is that something that a regular exam might identify early on? Um, it's typically very uh, sudden. Yeah. So the exams help with prevention, but they're not necessarily going to identify today that your horse is going to have colic next week. Yeah. All right. This is maybe where we're going to take our second and last break of the program. But I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Martha Malakota. We're talking about equine wellness care. We'll be back with more after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest is Dr. Martha Malicote from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. We're talking about equine wellness care. Dr. Malicote, when is a horse considered an old horse? That's a great question. And I, like many of these things, have a very vague answer for you. But I'm going to say for most horses around 20 is when I start to think of them as being a, an old horse. And some of that has to do with how they're cared for over the course of their lives. As we have been providing better and better veterinary care for our horses, they are living longer and longer. There are ponies that can live to be 40 years old. And so 20 is not actually that old when you're going to live to be 40. But that's kind of the marker that we tend to use. And at that point, we start to think about, you know, is their immune function still good? Or is their ability to fight off disease as good as it's always been? Those endocrine diseases we were talking about, particularly PPID, is something that happens in older horses. So I start to be even more critical when I look at that animal and say, mm, are you starting to develop PPID? Um, so those are all important things in that group. Yeah. And for the options for treating them, I mean, as a horse gets older, do, do the complications begin to arise? Do the, do the kinds of things which they can experience become harder to treat? I wouldn't say that in each individual problem becomes harder to treat, but what we start to see as horses age is they may have multiple health concerns. And so then we're balancing, you know, how we treat each of those health concerns, sometimes in ways that might conflict with each other for the different problems. And that can pose a little bit more complication as you try to decide how to manage those things. Um, for example, horses get what we kind of a broad umbrella of things that we call equine asthma, not that different from um, asthma in people. A lot of folks are familiar with that. And there are horses that develop asthma and it's a chronic disease. It doesn't go away. And they actually get worse and worse over time. And so, you know, as they age, if they have asthma, they may start to have more and more 
episodes of that, of the signs of having asthma. And so we have to manage those more and more aggressively. Uh, do, do, do they make like a horse rescue inhaler? They do make horse inhalers. Um, they are choices for treatment on horses with asthma are very interesting because we do use some of the inhalant, same exact ones that you or I might take. Um, but the cost with using those can get to be quite high. Anyone who's ever bought their own human inhaler knows that they're actually expensive. And one inhaler will treat a horse for probably less than a week. So oh, yeah. um, it doesn't get you very far. So we have a lot of other things that we lean on to help with that. And some of that is actually systemic medication as well. Some of the same steroids that you might take as an inhaler for a person, we might give to that horse as an injection or as an oral medication. Uh, so is that something like a fluticasone kind of situation? Yeah, that category of medication. Yeah, exactly. yeah because the albuterol would be, as you say, that's not yeah. cheap. Uh, and what about, I mean, horses that experience asthma, presumably they're no longer like competitive horses, right? Typically not. There's kind of a range of severity and there's some horses that have a very mild form of asthma. Those are typically younger horses. That's not the old horse population, but they may have some limitation to their ability to do their job, but with treatment, they can do a job. Um, but they often, um, these older horses that develop it can have cyclic worsening episodes and ultimately end up with some, you know, scarring and inflammation in their lungs that they don't fully recover from. Yeah. So. Well, let's talk a bit about horses that may reproduce. How old can mares be and still uh, reproduce? It's a great question. Um, so when a horse is routinely bred, say a broodmare, that that's her, her kind of primary role and she's bred every year, has been bred every year up to, you know, an age of maybe up to 20, be no problem to continue to have foals to, till you get to be an older horse. What is a greater challenge is if you take a mare who has never had a foal and then she's 18 years old and we decide now is the time we want her to have a foal. Uh. And that's a bigger reproductive challenge because she hasn't been utilizing her reproductive tract. And so we have to make sure to address any underlying issues that might be there. Interestingly, if you have a horse that's been a broodmare since they were five or six and you just continue on that cycle, they tend to be able to continue to produce foals every year. Yeah. So what are the, what are some of the important concerns for breeding age mares and their health? Because there's going to, you know, I, if I'm, I'm guessing that this, this is anything like human beings who are pregnant, there's going to be a little bit more frequent uh, healthcare needed than if you are not pregnant. Absolutely. And there's kind of two buckets of things. One of those is the actual reproduction, the breeding process. And, and quite honestly, I'm not a specialist in that area at all, but it is, you know, that part of the process is going to require really frequent visits while you're um, getting that mare into foal, right? At that first period of time, you may see your veterinarian a couple times a week for a few weeks before she's in foal. And then after that, we tend to check the pregnancy a couple times over the course of the pregnancy. Similar to humans, if you're low risk, you know, we'll check that foal, you know, a couple times, maybe at three or four months of pregnancy, and then maybe again at six or seven, just to make sure everything's progressing normally. If you have a higher risk pregnancy, you might look at them more frequently, very similar, analogous to humans in that way. And that's all checks of the foal, of the mare's uterus to make sure everything's progressing like it should be. Beyond that, we also need to make sure that that foal is, or that mare is kept healthy, right? We need to make sure that she's on a regular vaccine schedule, just like she would be otherwise. But what's really key is that we want to 
do two special things from a vaccination perspective. First of those is that there is a infection called herpes virus that horses can get that can cause abortions. And so we give them extra vaccines for that during pregnancy. And then the other part that's really important, this kind of circles us back to where we started with this conversation, is that foals need to get good colostrum. So I'm going to vaccinate that mare. I'm going to booster her for everything about a month before she's due to foal to make sure that that colostrum she's making is as good as possible and gives that foal the best boost that it can for immunity against the diseases that are important in our area. So that's kind of that final thing is I'm going to boost her right before she's set to full. With uh, mares that are pregnant, how long will the gestation period be? 11 months. 11 months. So that really, that's great timing. Look, if you want to have like uh, a foal every year, just about, right? Absolutely. It's, Uh, it's excellent. But can they, I mean, they can, they can have a foal that they're nursing and be pregnant at the same time? Yes. It's actually quite common for broodmares to be bred back, you know, either a week or three and a half weeks after they foal. And kind of along that idea of, you know, a broodmare that's bred every year will continue to get into foal every year really nicely. And the same holds true. If you have a healthy foaling, a normal foal, a normal mare postpartum, then they can be bred back quite efficiently. And, and it is actually not a very complicated process. Yeah. We are approaching the conclusion of the show, and and as we as we begin to wind down, you know, we think about the life of a horse. Which, yeah, I mean, twenty years with an animal is is a good time to have is, is a good long time. And as you say, some ponies can live even twice as long. This is a a commitment to caring for this animal in the long haul, and the. Expense is going to be considerable. I mean, you talk about 20 plus years maybe of veterinary care. That's uh, an investment. But overall, I mean, people who care for horses are often quite knowledgeable and really passionate about this. They they want the best for these animals. Um, you know, so maybe this is just for the sake of our listeners who are not really well versed in, in horses. Um Overall, I mean, the recommendations, what? Just have a good relationship with a veterinarian, it sounds like. Absolutely. It's it's incredibly important to have that relationship, and there's a lot of good reasons for it. Obviously, what we're talking about today, making sure that the right wellness care is being provided at the right time for that life stage of the horse is really important, and like that's a cornerstone of this. But I think the other consideration to keep in mind is that um, – those horses might have emergencies. You need to have someone to call if that horse does colic or if they happen to injure themselves and need to be sewed up or any number of things that horses can do. They're great at injuring themselves. And having an established relationship with a veterinarian that knows your horse, is familiar with your horse and has delivered its wellness care is really important to then being able to call that doctor at midnight on Saturday and say, my horse is sick. I need you to come see him. Yeah. And when we talk about the horse vet world right now, there is a shortage, an increasing shortage of equine vets. And part of that is because of the amount of on-call and the lifestyle that's involved in getting on the road and caring for these animals. And so the best way to ensure that you'll have a vet available when you need a vet for an emergency is to already have a relationship with someone when your horse is healthy. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because you're just, you're probably describing your life, right? You get in a you get a call, you get in a truck, and you drive out somewhere. But having having that person to call, uh, well, you've got to you got to have that relationship established. And and then once you do, you you can maybe sleep a little bit better knowing that you've got a 
a good, strong relationship with a veterinarian. Well, Dr. Martha Malikov, thank you so much for coming back and talking to me. It's always really great to to have you here, and, and I always feel like I learn a whole lot when you're when you're on the show. So I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. Martha Malikov is a veterinarian at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, where I also want to thank Sarah Carey and Amanda Buckley with for their help with the program, and to all of you for listening to the show week in and week out. Thank you so much. I want to remind you that coming up next week, we'll have another episode. This is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. Have a great weekend.